Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And on June 12th, 2019, a small spacecraft called OSIRIS-REx set a new out-of-this-world record. That record was for entering the closest orbit around a small planetary body. And the record was previously held by, well, OSIRIS-REx. But now it was really extra super close, like 680 meters or less than 2,500 feet close. The planetary body is the asteroid Bennu, B-E-N-N-U. It will eventually get even closer to Bennu. The plan is for the spacecraft to make contact with the asteroid for the purposes of collecting a sample. Then it will begin its journey back to Earth. Right now, it's taking a series of images of the asteroid, partly so that a team back here on Earth can evaluate the best spot to make that point of contact. It turns out Bennu is a bit more bumpy than we anticipated. So finding a spot that will be suitable for OSIRIS-REx and give it the best chance for a successful mission is no small task in of itself. That's the short version of the story. But today, I want to talk more about the mission, the technology, and the long-term plan to mine asteroids as part of the overall strategy for deep space operations. And this isn't the first time I've talked about asteroid mining. Way back in June 2012, my co-host Chris Paulette and I talked about this idea. And we also replayed that episode in May 2019. So some of this might sound a bit familiar since I'll be tackling a similar subject, but it's well overdue for a follow-up. So let's begin with a high-level view of what asteroid mining is all about. There are many different types of asteroids out there. They formed over billions of years from the same protoplanetary dust that orbited the sun and eventually formed the planets and moons of our solar system. Some of those asteroids were formed just by particles of dust crashing into one another and forming larger particles, eventually growing into small rocks and then, you know, less small rocks into big honking rocks. Some formed after other planetary bodies had collisions and ejected matter out into space as a result. But in general, you got a bunch of rocky stuff floating around the solar system. And I said there are many different types of asteroids, and that is true, but it's also a bit complicated. And that's because there's actually more than one way to classify asteroids. You could classify them by their location, for example. Most of the asteroids we know about are in orbit in what we call the asteroid belt, appropriately enough. And that's between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Now, there are other asteroids called near-Earth asteroids, which, as the name suggests, have orbits that take them close to the Earth. These can sometimes pose what is called a problem. And by a problem, I mean that a sufficiently large enough asteroid could cause global devastation should it collide with Earth, you know, fun times. But... We can also classify asteroids based on what they are made out of. There are three major classes of asteroids. The most common type that we know about is C-type, or chondrite asteroids. These are made up of silicate rocks and clay and have some carbonaceous material in them. 
They are in the outer regions of the asteroid belt. They are dark and thus hard to spot, but they make up about 75% of all known asteroids. Then you've got S-type, or silicaceous asteroids, or stony asteroids. They consist of nickel, iron, and silicate materials primarily, and they tend to be brighter than C-type asteroids, and most of those inhabit the inner asteroid belt. Then you've got M-type, or metallic asteroids, that are made primarily from nickel and iron. They make up about 8% of all known asteroids, and they're mostly in the middle region of the asteroid belt, and they also are brighter than C-type asteroids. Now, those are the major types, but there are also A-type asteroids, B-type, D-type asteroids, and so on. These represent rare or extremely rare types of asteroids, and some are considered subtypes of the more common variants. Some are kind of a split between different major types. They're different enough to justify a subclassification. They're somewhere in between the major uh, versions. Bennu, the asteroid that OSIRIS-REx orbits, is one of these smaller subclassifications. It's technically a B-type asteroid. B-type asteroids are a subcategory of C-type asteroids, which, as I just mentioned, make up the vast majority of the known asteroids that we've observed so far. That's one of the reasons the OSIRIS-REx team selected Bennu, but I'll get back to that. So, asteroid mining, as the name suggests, involves harvesting resources from asteroids. Those resources could include volatile substances like trapped gases within the molecular structure of the asteroid. Metals are another possible resource an asteroid mining could go after, stuff like platinum. Water is another big resource, as it could be used to produce rocket fuel, among other things. Most deep space exploration strategies include some sort of asteroid mining component, as it would mean making use of materials that are already out in space to support the mission, which reduces the need to carry more stuff with you when you're launching from Earth. In fact, the concept of asteroid mining is all about being able to leverage stuff out in space while we're exploring or colonizing space. It's not about bringing resources back to Earth, but rather limiting the resources we need to bring from Earth out into space. And that's a big deal. The more massive the payload of your spacecraft, the more fuel you need to get off the ground. And that could necessitate the design of new launch vehicles if the payload you're looking at is heavy enough. And the fuel itself is really expensive. So if you can reduce the amount of fuel you need, then you bring down the complexity and the cost of a launch. And it's absolutely necessary to do something like asteroid mining if we want to send people to places like Mars and have them be able to get back again. If those who travel to Mars can make use of the resources that are actually on the red planet using techniques that we've perfected through asteroid mining, and they can do that to produce their own rocket fuel, they can manufacture their own fuel they need to return to Earth. There'd be no need to carry twice as much fuel on board to make a round trip. Moreover, harvesting resources from asteroids could yield us the materials we need to build structures out in space in the first place. So instead of launching spacecraft that are carrying components and modules that then have to be assembled in orbit or in deep space, we could get the raw materials in space itself and establish orbiting manufacturing facilities. Again, we wouldn't have to take stuff from Earth and send it out into space because we'd be harvesting all that raw materials from other bodies in space. Of course, all of this is easy to talk about in the hypothetical. 
Actually building the equipment that can make this possible is another matter entirely. And while we can be theoretical about it, being practical requires a whole lot more work. OSIRIS-REx and other projects are building the foundation upon which we can actually construct this asteroid mining future. So let's talk more about that mission and the spacecraft. One thing the team had to do was figure out which asteroid to select for a mission in the first place. I mean, there are millions of them. So how did they settle on Bennu, metaphorically speaking, since the spacecraft has not, as of the recording of this podcast, literally settled on the asteroid? There are more than half a million identified asteroids in the solar system. So why did the team choose Bennu? Well, first, they decided the asteroid couldn't be too far away. That would make it impractical to journey there. So the further away the asteroid, the harder it is to get there, and the potential for failure increases as distance increases. For that reason, the team wanted to focus on asteroids that fall into the category of near-Earth objects, or NEOs. Near is a relative term, mind you. They're not just a quick jaunt away. To be classified as an NEO, the object has to be within 1.3 astronomical units from the Sun in their orbits. A single astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. That means it's about 93 million miles, or around 150 million kilometers. That makes 1.3 astronomical units at around 120,800,000 miles, or 194,500,000 kilometers. So, as I said, near is relative, but that's because space is really big. NEOs can sometimes pose a potential hazard to Earth. These asteroids are in a subcategory called Potentially Hazardous Asteroids, or PHAs. And Bennu happens to be one of those. There is a small chance that the asteroid could collide with Earth late in the 22nd century. And by small chance, I mean we currently estimate the odds of it happening are less than 0.04%. But still, when you're looking at the potential for devastation, any chance isn't, you know, great. But back to choosing Bennu. So Bennu was one of just 192 asteroids that had an Earth-like orbit with low eccentricity. So it's got a nice, stable orbit that's pretty similar to Earth's. The, out of all the, the thousands, the, there are more than 7,000 near-Earth objects that they were looking at, only... 192 met that criteria, and Bennu was one of those 192. Next, the team looked at the size of the remaining candidates, because smaller asteroids rotate faster than larger ones, and fast-rotating asteroids can eject material out into space, and that could pose a problem for any spacecraft that is flying nearby or trying to make contact with that asteroid. So the team needed to rule out any asteroids that had a diameter smaller than 200 meters because they would probably be spinning too quickly. That eliminated all but 26 of the candidates. Bennu's diameter, by the way, is approximately 500 meters. And we have to use approximations in part because Bennu is a big lumpy rock, so it all depends upon where you're doing the measuring. Then there's the asteroid's composition. Out of the 26 remaining NEOs that were under consideration, not much was known about 14 of them, so those were out. Out of the 12 remaining NEOs, only 5 are known to be rich in carbon and other materials like volatiles, and therefore they have the potential to have 
organic material, sort of the building blocks of life, not necessarily any proof of life forms on the asteroid itself, but rather the basic components that together could form a life. And so Bennu and four other asteroids were left on the list, and the team eventually chose Bennu from those few remaining NEOs that were under consideration. To complete a full orbit, it takes Bennu about 436 Earth days to go around the sun. Every half dozen years, Bennu gets fairly close to Earth as the respective orbits of Bennu and our planet bring the two bodies within 0.002 astronomical units of each other. And as I said, late in the 22nd century, that is going to happen about eight times really fairly close to one another. But the chance of a collision is is fairly, really small, not fairly small, less than 0.04%. Still, it's a possibility. Now, when we come back, I'll talk more about the spacecraft itself before moving on to talk of other technology and development. They'll bring us close to mining asteroids. But first, let's take a quick break. So let's talk about OSIRIS-REx. First, let's talk about the name. Now, I'm pretty confident that the name was one of those where they came up with the name first and then retroactively worked to turn that name into an acronym. Osiris is the name of the ancient Egyptian god of the afterlife and rebirth. Bennu, the asteroid, happens to also have an Egyptian name, as named after a mythical bird in ancient Egyptian lore, which played a part in creating the world itself. So my guess is that the team was working on this spacecraft. They selected Bennu as the asteroid they were going to visit, and Bennu was named back in 2012, so this was probably all happening around the same time. And then they decided to go with a similar theme, and they chose an Egyptian reference when they named their own spacecraft. That's a guess on my part. Now, officially, the acronym stands for Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer, OSIRIS-REx. And the X is in lowercase because explorer. All the other letters are uppercase. Now, I think my guess that it was a retroactive acronym is a fair one with a name like that. Doesn't just roll off the tongue. But hey, I could be totally wrong. This is, again, just a guess on my part. Maybe they came up with the long name and then someone looked at the initials and said, hang on. And it was just kismet. Well, I'll talk about the equipment on OSIRIS-REx in a second. But first, I want to talk about the overall mission. The spacecraft launched as part of a payload on an Atlas V 411 rocket on September 8th, 2016. About a year later, the Earth gave OSIRIS-REx an assist by way of a gravity boost. So OSIRIS kind of entered into an orbit, and then in order to put it on a intercept trajectory with Bennu, as it was completing this orbit and getting close to the Earth, it passed near the Earth, so it would get pulled by Earth's gravity, then used a deflection strategy to put itself on its its intercept trajectory with Bennu and uh, was able to get a little speed boost that way. Another year later, in August 2018, the spacecraft transitioned into the approach phase. At this point, OSIRIS-REx was still about 2 million kilometers or 1.2 million miles away from Bennu. 
This phase actually lasted several months and would end on December 3rd, 2018, when OSIRIS-REx was able to get a visual on Bennu and was starting to create a sort of map for the team on Earth to study. Starting on December 3rd, 2018, the spacecraft entered into the next phase, the Preliminary Survey Phase. At a distance of about 7 kilometers, or 4.3 miles, OSIRIS-REx passed over the North Pole, Equator, and South Pole of Bennu a total of five times, and the data was sent back to Earth so that scientists could estimate things like the asteroid's mass and get a better idea for the shape of the asteroid, and also to learn how the asteroid was spinning in orbit, which is all valuable information for planning the upcoming phases that would follow. Next, on December 31st, 2018, the spacecraft entered into a very close orbit with Bennu, which ranged from about 1.6 to 2.1 kilometers in altitude above the asteroid, or about 0.99 to 1.3 miles. Now, at the time, this was the closest a spacecraft had ever orbited a small body in space. So this was the first time OSIRIS-REx set a record for that. And it was in this phase that the navigation technique switched from being star-based, in other words, it was using the stars to navigate where it was going, to becoming a landmark-based navigation system. So now it's in respect to the asteroid itself. During this phase, the navigation team on Earth could practice maneuvering the spacecraft near the asteroid, which would be important for the later phases as well. So each phase kind of set the ground for the next phase. And that next phase began on February 28th, 2019. This one was called the Detailed Survey Baseball Diamond Phase. And it got that name early in the mission design process because originally the plan was to have OSIRIS-REx move around in orbit in a shape reminiscent of a baseball diamond and the actual pattern changed during the mission design phase, but the name stuck. Now, the purpose of those movements is to produce a, a bunch of viewing angles of Bennu's surface to get a better idea, not just of where OSIRIS-REx might eventually make contact, but also teach us more about what the asteroid is actually made out of. Next was the Detailed Survey Equatorial Stations phase, and that phase was much more about finding an appropriate collection site for the OSIRIS-REx to take samples from the asteroid. I'll cover that actual process in just a second. It, it's super cool, but before that can happen, the team has to determine the right spot for it. The goal of the phase was to select up to 12 potential collection sites on the surface of Bennu. This has proven to be trickier than you think. As I mentioned earlier, Bennu is a bumpy little sucker. So finding spots that are smooth and flat enough has been really challenging. The team also has looked for evidence of loose regolith on the surface of the asteroid. That's the loose soil, essentially. It's the stuff that the spacecraft will ultimately try to collect on its sampling mission. The current phase that it's in is Orbital B. That's what broke the record that OSIRIS-REx had set during the Orbital A phase by getting even closer to Bennu. Right now, OSIRIS-REx is gathering information that will be used to create as accurate a 3D model for the asteroid's shape as we can manage. It will also conduct a radio science experiment during this phase, and the result of this phase is meant to help the team determine which of those up to 12 candidates would be best to focus on to really eliminate 10 of those 12. So they're looking at three criteria to select two potential landing spots. 
Those three criteria are safety, sample ability, and science value. So it needs to be able to score high on all three of those to be considered a, a potential collection site. And as I said, they will select two of them. One of them will be the prime target, their number one choice, and the second is their backup. Now, at the conclusion of this phase, OSIRIS-REx will then enter a third orbit, orbit C, but this one will actually be further out than orbital B. So orbital C will move OSIRIS-REx to about 1.3 kilometers above the surface of the asteroid as it examines particles on and around Bennu. Next, OSIRIS-REx will enter into a recon phase where it will take a very close look at those pot two potential collection sites. And it's going to pass at an altitude of around 225 meters or 738 feet above Bennu's surface. At that distance, the cameras aboard the OSIRIS-REx can focus on objects as small as two centimeters in size. The team can then determine if their initial site or the backup site would be the best bet for the actual collection. So they can narrow their choices down to their actual, you know, end target. Before committing to that course, the team will hold a couple of rehearsal events. They will practice moving the spacecraft out of its orbit to fly above the landing site, initially at an altitude of about 410 feet or 125 meters above the collection site. Then they will maneuver the OSIRIS-REx back into orbit. On the second rehearsal, the OSIRIS-REx will actually descend further and hover over the collection site well over it, but still over it, before returning to orbit again. After all of that, if assuming all of it goes well, it's showtime. The critical phase is called TAG, and TAG stands for Touch and Go, which should happen in 2020. Also, uh, I've heard people erroneously say that the game TAG stands for Touch and Go. That uh, does not appear to be true. The etymology of the word is older than that particular uh, phrase has been. So I don't think that that really applies to the game tag, but it certainly applies to this process with OSIRIS-REx. Uh, I'll explain what the collection process is in just a moment. But after that phase, the spacecraft's thrusters will push it back from Bennu to a safe distance, and it'll kind of chill out at that safe distance until March 2021. At that time, it will enter into the return cruise phase, and that's what's supposed to bring OSIRIS-REx home. So why is it waiting? It's waiting because just as I've talked about when it comes to going from Earth to Mars, you have to wait for the orbits of the different bodies to line up properly to make the trip as efficiently as possible. So that won't happen until March 2021, uh, and that's when... OSIRIS-REx can start its intercept trajectory to Earth. Anyway, onto the spacecraft itself. With its solar panels deployed, it measures 6.2 meters or 20.25 feet in length. It's 2.4 meters wide. Uh, that's essentially 8 feet. And it's sort of like a rectangular prism. So the width measured either left, right, or up, down with respect to its length is the same. It weighs 2,110 kilograms when full of fuel. That's about 4,650 pounds. So it's hefty when it's fully fueled. And the spacecraft is home to five science instruments, as well as the system called TAGSAM, 
Tag SAM stands for Touch and Go Sample Acquisition Mechanism. So this is the actual device that's going to do the collecting. Uh, the Tag SAM is part of the Osiris Rex that will actually make contact with Bennu. And it looks kind of like a pogo stick that extends out from one side of the spacecraft. But this is a pretty powerful pogo stick. Inside of the Tag SAM is a mechanism that will direct a jet of nitrogen gas to, quote, fluidize regolith to allow the sample head to capture granular material while contact pads capture fine material, end quote. So it's blasting the surface with this jet of gas and then collecting what ends up flying out. The whole process should last about five seconds. Then springs in the tag sam will actually expand, pushing Osiris-Rex off the surface of Bennu. So you could argue it really is like a high-tech pogo stick. The team on Earth will initiate commands to make Osiris-Rex spin. And the purpose for that is to figure out how much stuff did it actually collect. They will monitor the change in the spacecraft's inertia. And by looking at the difference in inertia between when the spacecraft was had before it had taken the sample and after it had taken the sample, they can then deduce how much material it actually collected. And if it's not enough, the spacecraft actually has enough nitrogen gas to make two more attempts before it runs out. So it can do three of these collection leaps before it is done. Mechanisms in the spacecraft will move the sample from the TAGSAM tool to a sample return capsule, uh, or SRC. It's essentially a protected container designed to be retrieved when OSIRIS-REx gets back to Earth. More on that in a bit. As for the other scientific instruments, I did mention there were five of them. They include the OCAMS Instrument Suite. That's a collection of special cameras that are taking all those amazing images of Bennu right now. And honestly, if you haven't seen these, go online and search for Bennu, B-E-N-N-U, asteroid, because the most recent photos are pretty amazing. Then they have a laser altimeter, or OLA, that is using lasers to create a detailed 3D map of Bennu's shape. And I've talked about how these work before, but the basic idea is that you have a laser and you have a sensor. So you fire the laser and the sensor picks up the reflections of the laser after the laser has made contact with the surface of whatever it is you're aiming at. By looking at how long it took for the laser to travel from the laser point to hit the, sur the surface of the uh, substance and then back for the sensor to pick it up, you can tell how far away or how close something is. So if you do this a lot, if you know how far away you are from the object, and you do this a lot across the surface of the object, you can use that information to make a detailed map of the surface features of whatever that object is. And we do this on Earth too, but it's very useful out in space. And then you've got the Thermal Emission Spectrometer, or O-T-E-S, OTIS. The spectrometer's job is to analyze the mineral and chemical composition of Bennu, as well as to measure the surface temperature of the asteroid. Next, you've got the Visible and Infrared Spectrometer, or OVIRS. The O in all of these, by the way, stands for OSIRIS-REx. Uh, this particular instrument is going to measure light from Bennu, both in the visible and near-infrared spectrum, and that analysis could indicate the presence of stuff like water or organic material. Finally, there's the Regolith X-ray Imaging Spectrometer, or REXIS, which will image X-ray emissions from Bennu, and that will tell us which elements are most abundant on the asteroid. 
So it kind of gives us an idea of, of how much concentration there is of each element that's present. So in March 2021, assuming everything went well, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will begin its journey back to Earth. It will enter into an orbit around the sun that, again, will bring it close enough to the Earth for the next part of the mission to commence. And that will happen in the fall of 2023. So from 20 to the spring of 2021 to the fall of 2023, it will be in this orbit. So it takes a long time to get around in space, particularly when all the stuff out in space insists on moving around in orbits and stuff. So when it's close enough, then the spacecraft is going to jettison that sample return capsule to put it on an intercept trajectory toward Earth, like an actual collision course toward Earth. Then OSIRIS-REx will follow a deflection maneuver and place itself in a stable orbit around the sun where it won't be in the way of anything. The capsule will enter Earth's atmosphere, and when it reaches an altitude of 20.8 miles or 33.5 kilometers, it will deploy a drogue parachute. And when it descends to 1.9 miles in altitude, or 3 kilometers, then it will deploy the main parachute. Assuming all goes as planned, it should touch down in Utah on September 24th, 2023. Pretty amazing to have it all plotted out to the day this far in advance. And it just tells you how exact these processes have to be. Now, upon retrieval, again, assuming everything's gone well, the contents of that capsule will undergo incredible scrutiny and analysis. Researchers will look for any signs of organic compounds. In the end, we'll learn a lot about stuff that could come in useful for many future missions, including dealing with potentially hazardous asteroids and asteroid mining. More on that in just a bit, but first let's take another quick break. While OSIRIS-REx was sending back incredible photos of Bennu from just a few hundred meters away, other space news was also focusing on asteroids and our future with them. NASA awarded a grant to a company called TransAstronautica Corporation. Sometimes it's just referred to as TransAstra. The company is designing flight systems that follow the asteroid-provided in-situ supplies structure, or APIS architecture. As the name implies, this type of technology is meant to harvest materials from asteroids in space, rather than taking the asteroids somewhere else to mine them. And there are a lot of different designs that follow this particular concept. Some of them are landers or rovers that can use my various mining techniques to pull stuff out from asteroids or collect regolith from the surface. But TransAstra's design is a little different. They call their approach the Mini-B system. And really, they have a whole collection of different devices of different sizes that fall under this general category. The Mini-B itself is sort of a prototype proof-of-concept spacecraft. It's a 250-kilogram spacecraft. So it's not, it's not as big as the future versions are going to be. But it will serve as a testbed for a type of mining called optical mining meant to largely extract stuff like volatiles and water from asteroids. Now, in the case with the Mini-B, it will work with a simulated asteroid to make sure that everything is working the way it's supposed to. Uh, the Mini-B will capture the simulated asteroid. The way the B spacecraft are, are designed 
uh, they have a large chamber that is essentially made up of a bag. And so it's a flexible bag that is open on one end. Inside the bag is a grapple net. It's a net that actually has actuators on it so it can open and close. And the bag itself can also close. So the idea is that the mini bee will end up uh, capturing this simulated asteroid in a way that the larger bee family will also do. So this is how the process works because it's pretty fascinating. I watched a whole video on this and I was really blown away by the approach. So first of all, you have to imagine that this spacecraft is approaching a small asteroid. And the asteroid's rotating, as I mentioned earlier, Bennu rotates. So asteroid is rotating, and so you are approaching along the axis of rotation. So it's it's like you're coming directly at the end of its rotation. Uh, so you're watching it turn in, let's say, a clockwise motion, just for the sake of imagining this. Uh, the spacecraft first matches speed with the asteroid, so that it can then very slowly approach uh, so that this bag and the net inside the bag can fit over the asteroid. The idea is that you position the spacecraft so that the net is ready to grapple with the asteroid itself. However, before that happens, the spacecraft matches the rotation of the asteroid itself. So that way, from the frame of reference of the asteroid, it appears that the spacecraft isn't moving at all because they both are matching their rotation together. The, this is very important because otherwise, obviously, if the spacecraft is not rotating with uh, at the same speed as the asteroid, then if the net tries to grip, it's going to twist. So by spinning the spacecraft at the same speed that the asteroid is spinning, they look still in reference to one another. Remember, this is relativity. It's all dependent upon your frame of reference. Now, at that point, the spacecraft can close the net, which grips on to the asteroid. And then the capture bag that's on the outside of this net also closes. And this provides a protective barrier that actually completely encapsulates the asteroid inside it. Then the thrusters on the spacecraft will fire to counteract the rotation. So it's kind of like a brake. You start to stop the rotation of the asteroid and use those to orient the spacecraft in relation to the sun because the sun provides the power for the actual mining operation. Remember, I mentioned it was optical mining. Well, here's where that plays in. The spacecraft will have reflectors that will concentrate sunlight so it can be directed and focused on the surface of, in this case, the simulated asteroid. But in future versions, assuming this works, it'll be on actual asteroids. And that light will heat up the surface of the asteroid, which will force it to release volatiles and water, and it'll break up the asteroid, actually, if you heat it up enough. And that molecular structure starts to break down. It's kind of like using a magnifying glass to concentrate sunlight and use it to burn wood. Collected gases will go into inflatable containers that will have passive cooling from space itself. You know, space is very cold, so essentially you have these bags that are uh, the outside is open to space and you collect all the gases and water vapor in there. And because of the incredibly cold temperatures, all that heat radiates away and you end up with bags of ice. Ice, not just of water, but also of these volatile 
gases. The slag, so in other words, the rocks and the other materials, will go into collection bags at the base of the large capture bag. So there's going to be sort of a sorting mechanism that will shoot this regolith, uh, these rocks and the, the metals and things that are uh, the solids from the asteroid into these collection bags. And ideally, one of these B devices would be able to do this to a few different asteroids before it would need to be emptied. But the goal of the mini B isn't to go into full operation. It's really just to show that this approach is viable and could work on a much larger scale. And that's where the bigger versions of the B family would come in. So if the mini B proves to be effective, then we might see the larger ones. One of those is called the honey bee that would be able to mine asteroids that measure about 10 meters in size. So that's a pretty big capture bag and net that would have to be used. And like the mini bee, it would capture asteroids in that same process. And this is important for lots of reasons. One is that you don't want to lose any of those resources that get released during the optical mining process. Another is that as an asteroid breaks down, it is going to break into lots of little pieces. Capturing the asteroid means those pieces aren't just floating off and forming a cloud of space junk that could be a potential hazard for future missions. So it's very important to, to contain all of that. And the company actually proposes gathering up all the unusable rubble, the stuff that can't be used for construction purposes or uh, used for metal or whatever it may be. You take all that other stuff, what would just be useless slag from this mining process, and then fill up tubes with this slag. So imagine long plastic tubes, these containers that are just full of all this asteroid slag. Then they could use those tubes filled with slag as shielding for space stations or habitats. The material could act as a method to absorb harmful radiation, which is a pretty creative way to handle the waste byproduct of a mining process. I do wonder how sustainable that is in the long term, because I imagine at some point you wouldn't need to shield anything else out there, right? You would have built enough shields while you're still mining asteroids for their materials. But maybe I'm thinking too small, and maybe the future will include unimaginable expansion into space. And maybe that's more realistic considering the history of humanity on Earth. It's just hard for me to imagine right now. Next in the line of flight systems is the Queen Bee, which would be able to capture asteroids of up to 40 meters in size. And like the smaller cousins, it would follow the exact same process, you know, the general procedure of encapsulating and then optically mining asteroids. It would just be bigger. The thrusters on the B devices will actually use harvested water to provide thrust. So the B devices will be able to continue to operate in space as they extract resources from asteroids, and you don't have to worry about having a huge amount of fuel on board. And they actually do this in a pretty simple way. They're not using the water as rocket fuel, precisely. What happens is they will funnel the water into a chamber, and that chamber will be exposed to focused sunlight. And that will heat up the water past its boiling point, which will turn it into a gas. And the gas will force its way out of a nozzle that's at the base of the chamber, and that creates thrust. So the bees would only use a small amount of the water that they collect as propellant. And the rest of the water would be delivered to fuel depots in space, and that water can then be used to produce rocket fuel. If it works, it could help form the basis for deep space exploration. Rather than shooting fuel up into space from Earth, we'll just make it out there in space in the first place. 
Now, these spacecraft could lead to the development of more space mining equipment, as well as plans for the fabrication facilities that would turn slag into usable construction material in space, not to mention those fuel depots that would be needed to make use of the harvested volatiles and water. So this is just one small piece in a very large puzzle that we're going to have to construct in order to make asteroid mining a practical technology and part of an overall working strategy for deep space exploration and colonization. And the Mini-B system is just one proposed approach. I don't mean to say it's the only way this is going to happen. It's just one proposal that got some funding. There are lots of other ones out there, too. And some of them don't use optical mining. Some of them use different methods. There are several private companies exploring the possibilities and testing out different systems or subsystems with the goal of asteroid mining in mind. We're likely to see some combination of several different approaches should it turn out that it's a viable pursuit. I doubt any single way is going to become the only method we rely upon. The prospects look fairly promising, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And if it is successful, we could see new efforts to travel to more distant locations, like Mars and beyond. Being able to replenish resources while out in space would mitigate one of the major challenges standing in our way, though it would be cavalier to suggest it's the biggest or most important challenge. There are lots of others to consider, such as protecting human explorers from the dangers of cosmic radiation. Plus, there's that whole thing that space is always trying to kill you. It's hard to get around that. But we're making some great progress. And I'm excited to see where this goes from here. I doubt I'll ever get a chance to venture into space, but it's still inspiring to think that future generations might have that option. Of course, we'll need to make sure we're making the right choices here on Earth right now to make that a future possibility. But you guys listen to tech stuff, so you're already on the right path for that kind of thing, right? Anyway... That wraps up this discussion of OSIRIS-REx and the Mini-B system and asteroid mining. Uh, I'm sure I'll do another episode about how to handle potentially hazardous asteroids. I did an episode about that in the past as well. But, you know, there are always developments that uh, add to our understanding. Certain tactics become more likely. Others become more unlikely. So I'll, I'll do a follow-up episode at some point. In the meantime, if any of you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or pop on by our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You're going to find an archive of all of our past episodes there, including the original asteroid mining episode we recorded back in 2012, as well as links to our social media presence and to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 